0: Well, I get the opportunity of introducing our guest speaker. Uh, in some ways, he doesn't need an introduction, but it would be helpful to you to have access to the preaching ministry there. He's been here many times throughout the years of Omaha Bible Church and very thankful for his partnership in the gospel. He's reached his 21st year, as I was noticing there, at Bethlehem Bible Church in Massachusetts, and I won't even attempt to pronounce the city. I'll give it an Omaha and spin. We'll let you correct it. So I'll let you introduce that if you feel led to uh, he's also the author uh, and founder, I guess you'd say, host of No Compromise Radio, um, very helpful resource. He's the author of a number of books, and I mentioned just two of them, Jesus Christ, the Prince of Preachers, and Sovereignty and Supremacy of King Jesus, because you can see right there his heartbeat for the glory of Jesus Christ. He graduated from Master's Seminary. He and his brother were there uh, at the same time. I had the privilege of going to college in California, so I just kind of wrote and Their shadows. My wife and I would sit in his Bible study, and I can testify that one thing that marked him is the doctrines of sovereign grace. He loved to talk about justification through faith in Christ, loves to talk about the gospel, loves to talk about the sovereignty of God's grace in Christ, Christ, the centrality of all of Scripture. That's his heartbeat. I would just to give a fun little fact to you before inviting him up to preach. He and his brother were called, and I also worked janitorial, custodial, I guess you could say uh, at the seminary um, So I got to hear a few things that were said around the seminary um, And one of them was these two were called the sons of thunder <laughs> They were both very passionate about the gospel and they, they made it their purpose to f- to find out where, where people were at And, and to uh, help them along with the, the doctrines of sovereign grace and you know, it, it's been awesome to To see their ministry and their love for Christ and where they are 20 and 21 years later in ministry. And so with that, I've just, we've just asked Mike to show us our need and to show us what God has provided in Christ. So if you do that for us.
1: <laughs> I want you to know that I graduated before Pat did that year. Mike comes before Pat alphabetically. I'll say quite a few things about Pat tonight. If you're back here at 6 o'clock, I'm just super thankful for Omaha Bible Church and um, what the Lord has done here through Pat. And by the way, years ago when my mother was here, many of you loved her when she was sick and dying. And I think of my mom singing Victory in Jesus, about dead but still singing the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And so I'm super glad to be back. There are many very frightening verses in the Bible. If you just pick up the Bible and read it, you'll quickly find out there are some shocking things, some terrifying things, some alarming things. If you had to pick the most terrifying verse in the Bible, I wonder which one you'd pick. Might it be Jude 15? To execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. Or might it be the words of Jesus in Mark 9? If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, for it is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go to hell into the unquenchable fire. These are frightening words. What about these chilling words from Jesus? Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Or might it be in Revelation 22, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Frightening words. Some think the most blood-curdling words are found in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out many demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. But there's another verse that if we consider today, what's the most frightening? I think it's going to be surprising to you. And it's from the book of Hebrews. Now, you're probably thinking it's this verse. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But it's a different verse. Here's the verse that I think that could be the most frightening verse in all the Bible. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Let's take our Bibles, please, and turn to Hebrews chapter 4 and take a look at that verse. And I think as you see it in context, you'll quickly understand, oh, it does tell me about the Bible. It is bibliology. It, It tells me about the nature of Scripture. But there's a context for this verse And we're going to look at that context this morning and show you then your need of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love the book of Hebrews. It's changed my life. Uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse said, this is the book of the Hebrews. The epistle to the Hebrews is written to the Hebrews to teach the Hebrews that they should no longer be Hebrews. (laughs) With the focus on the main Hebrew that I might add, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, There are four gospels in the Bible, the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Mark and Matthew and Luke and John. But some people think this book is called the fifth gospel. Why? Because it talks so much about Jesus. The other gospels talk about Christ's work on earth and, of course, culminating in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. But this book, Hebrews, talks a lot about his ministry in heaven as he intercedes as the great high priest. I know you love the book of Hebrews and even how it starts off with a bang in chapter 1. I mean, there's no ramping up speed or anything, just immediately praising who Jesus is. Verse 3, he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Could anything be greater? Yes. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Everything about this book is Jesus Christ and how great he is. You think about angels, he's greater. You think about priests, he's greater. You think about Moses, he's greater. Just think about anyone and and everything, Jesus is greater. Matter of fact, the language of Hebrews is better. The language of Hebrews is greater. Often you'll see those words, better, 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 better. More excellent, more excellent, more superior, more superior. And so this whole book is about who Jesus is is. Matter of fact, I, I ask myself the question, if I'm hurting and struggling in life, what do I need to know? Four steps to kind of get out of something, some pragmatism. The recipients of this letter were struggling, they were losing their homes, they hadn't died yet for the faith, but it was going to be close. And so what do they need? An exit strategy, how to get out of town? No, they needed to consider who Jesus was. Hebrews 3. Take a good long look at Jesus to make sure everything is in the right priority. So much so that these are the names of Jesus in this book alphabetically Author, Apostle, Captain, Christ, Finisher, Firstborn, God, Heir, High Priest, Lord, Mediator, Shepherd, Son, and Surety. Everything about this book is Jesus is greater. Now, before we get into the text specifically, if you remember that priests mainly do two things, it will help you since this is the book about Jesus the high priest. Matter of fact, if you look at chapter 8, verse 1, sometimes pastors ramble and you don't know what they're talking about. That's why I'm preaching today. You just stay over there, Pat. What's the point of all this in Hebrews? In Hebrews 8.1, it tells you. Hebrews 8.1. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. Here's the point. What's the point of this book? We have such a high priest, one who's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. There's this great high priest, and priests do two things. If you remember this, you'll get the book. They sacrifice right, for sins. Of course, we know Jesus. He is the sacrifice. And they pray. They make intercession priest, if you boil everything down, they make sacrifices and they intercede. And Jesus is the great high priest. Well, why do we need this high priest? And let's go to chapter 4, verse 12 and 13, these scary verses, and we'll see them in context. And you notice in English, at least, the first word in Hebrews 4.12 is "for." There's a connection. Don't miss the connection. Just back up even one verse and it'll tell you what the four is for. Verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Here's the big picture before we kind of parse things out. If you won't rest in Jesus, that's a good synonym for trust. Take him at his word. Have faith in him. Rest on God's promises and his work in Christ Jesus. If you won't rest in him, then on judgment day, the word of God is going to scrutinize you. And how will you fare? Will that day reveal any sins in your life? it doesn't take you very long to think, you know what, have I loved God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Have I loved my neighbors myself? Have I ever lusted? Have I ever coveted? Have I ever been envious? Have I ever had self-righteousness? Have I ever had unrighteousness? Have I ever had bitterness? Have I ever had greed? The list goes on. And we know because of Adam's sin and our own life, we are all sinners. You're sinners. I'm a sinner. And so if I I'm not going to trust in who Jesus is on that day, then the Word of God is going to scrutinize you like no MRI ever did because it's going to be worse. So he's trying to tell these Hebrews, don't trust in yourself because the Word of God on that day, Luther said, there's two days in my calendar, today and that day. What's that day? Judgment day. You're going to die one day and stand before God. Will you rest in the promises of God? I just trust Him that He did it all. Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. Or are you going to take your chances? How will you fare? So let's take a look at these verses. And first let me give you essentially the bad news or the terrifying news. And as terrifying as this news is, the comforting news will come. So first the terror, then the comfort. And we're going to look at verses 12 and 13. I'll just give you seven descriptions of God's word that will examine you on Judgment Day, so make sure you're resting in Jesus. If you're not resting in Jesus today, you ought to be. And, and why? Because this is the Word of God that's going to scrutinize you. Before I give you the seven, here's society today. God's Word's not true. There are errors in the Bible. Archaeology does not prove it to be factual. It's written by men. Look at all the different manuscripts. And society essentially does this. We scrutinize the Word of God. It's under us, and we are the authority. But you know what? On judgment day, it's the other way around. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, on judgment day, you stand before God without your mediator, the high priest. The word of God is judging you. You will not be its judge. It will be its your judge, jury, and executioner. So rest in Christ. What's the first description? It's called living. Isn't that interesting? For the word of God is Living. That's the first word, by the way, in the Greek. It's very emphatic. It's it's alive. It's not dead. It does its work because the living God has a living word. It's it's very active and Stephen called it the living oracles. It's not old, it's not out of date, it's not antiquated, it's not you know, yesterday, bygone era. No, it's a living word. Secondly, it's active. See the text. Living and active. This is where we get our word energy in the Greek. It's it's alive. It does its work. I've had a lot of memories in the last few days and Pat and I just talked about growing up in Omaha and fireworks and fourth of July was always fun. You get some fireworks, black cats or what else did we have? M eighties. <laughs> what? Lady fingers, yeah. And on the package said lay on ground. I mean, not you laying on the ground, but lay the firework on the ground. Light, fuse, and what was the third thing it said? Get away. I can still hear the ring in my ears when you didn't get away fast enough. But some didn't go off. What do we call those that didn't go off? Duds. There you go. This is very interactive. I like this. There's no duds when it comes to the Word of God. It's going to examine you. I've been in a lot of MRI tubes, and you can just feel that thing. It's small, and the magnet's going around. It's getting hot, and they're going to put the contrast dye in you, and they tell you, you know, you'll probably live, but one out of 10,000 die. Okay, thanks for the good news. And they put it, and and it sees inside of you. That's what this is talking about. It's living, and it's active. It's going to judge you. Make sure you're resting in Christ. There's no way you're going to make it through judgment day without a mediator. It's, It's active. It does its work. There's no duds when it comes to God's Word. Does not Isaiah 55 say about God's Word, It shall not return to me what? Empty or void. It shall accomplish for what I purpose. In addition, it's sharp. What's more than living and active? What's the text say? It's sharp. I could ask you the question, What's the sharpest knife in the world? And for my generation, you'll say Ginsu knife. Right? It was originally called, by the way, Quick Cut, but that doesn't sell, so they changed it to Ginsu. And that was the original, but wait, there's more type of pitch in commercials with direct response. Side note, um, the owner and originator of Ginsu Knives was asked, what does the word Ginsu mean? He said, it's translated this, I never have to work again. I preached this sermon in California. Somebody sent me some Ginsu knives. I look them up online. They're only 29 bucks. So by the way, the sharpest knives in the world are German precise Wusthof knives, if you ever want to know what the real sharp ones are, in case they get sent my way. <laughs> Volcanic glass is actually sharper. Sharper than even a surgeon's scalpel. Surgeon's scalpel tears itself. This volcanic glass obsidian is even sharper. But there's something more sharp than obsidian. And that's the word of God. This is not like a big broad sword that's going to examine you. It's like a fine scalpel cutting down to your heart. What's really in your heart? Will it find sin? Thoroughly looking at you. Completely looking at you. God himself doesn't need contrast dye or images or anything else. And to show you the emphasis, it's called a two-edged, literally double-mouthed, to show you the penetrating force of this knife. Sometimes this, this scalpel is used for cutting up sacrificial animals. It penetrates. It's sharp. Like David said of Goliath's sword, there is none like it. Give it to me. Not just sharp, what's the text say? Fourthly, it pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, joints and marrow. It, it pierces. Uh, the word pierce means to, to run through. It's like that javelin of Phineas that runs through not just one person, but through the one person and into the other and out their back. It does its work. Nothing, in they, it, 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 nothing is, is, is away from the scope of this lens. First Corinthians 4, the Lord comes who will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And so if you're here today and you're not trusting in Jesus, how will you fare on that day? God's knowledge is easy. He doesn't have to recall things. Job 11 says, he sees iniquity without investigating And if you look at the text, divide soul from spirit, this is not a a psychology class in terms of, well, we are tripartite and we have a soul and a spirit and a body, or do we have just a soul and a body or just a soul? It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with, it's invasive. It penetrates. Run to Christ and rest in Him. Fifthly, it discerns, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now we move to, not sacrificial language, not surgeon's language. We move to the judge language. We move to legal terminology. It judges. It passes judgment on you and your actions. It discriminates. It knows our hearts. So, so trust in Christ. Rest in Him. Believe on Him. There's no way out. I mean, if there was a way out besides that, fine. But there's no other option. God is so holy. God is so just. Every sin must be punished either on you or on Christ. Sixthly, it reveals. We move from the word of God to God himself and no creature is hidden from his sight. God declares the end from the beginnings, Isaiah 46. Daniel 2, he knows what is in darkness. Men like to sin at night because their deeds are evil and they want to avoid the gaze of God, but God knew about Adam's sin. God knew about Sarah's laugh. Maybe nobody else heard, but God sees in secret. Nothing is hidden. And if you're a created being, and you are, you're not hidden either. Look at the text naked and exposed to the eyes of Him. You don't have any um, special photographic lenses on that day that make you look nicer. You don't have any fig leaves to cover you. The text means naked. It's where we get the word gymnasium, because in the old days they would go to the gym naked, uncovered. But maybe the scariest thing here, and you think of Judgment Day, without a Savior, without a mediator, is exposed to the eyes of Him. You could study the Greek word here for exposed, is where we get our word trach, trachea, neck. Uh, I think in Latin it's, it's, uh, a trachea is a rough artery. So you've got arteries, your carotid arteries, and then you've got a rough artery here. It's your trachea. It feels rough. So here's the idea. On judgment day, if you won't trust in the high priest, Jesus, who sacrificed himself, who purges sins for all those who will believe in him, here's what's going to happen. On that day, your, your neck's going to be spread out before God's judgment like this, exposing your neck, your arteries. If you're going to kill an animal and sacrifice an animal, what do you do? Do you just take a little knife, a little butter knife, and run around the pen and just try to poke it? No, you grab the thing and push its neck back and put your leg maybe over its shoulder so it's just one slice and you're done. That's the the terminology here. The victim is exposed. Or it possibly might be on Judgment Day there'll be a knife under your trach so you look God in the eyes before He judges you. So you don't cower and look away. It's scary. These are scary images. And seventh, this God demands an accounting. He created you to obey and you are answerable. What does the text say with whom we have to reckon? How many times do you spit in the king's face before he judges you? How many panels on the space shuttle need to be defective before the O-ring goes? And I call this a divine layaway program. You sin now, you pay later. People don't know what layaway programs are and I could never use this illustration at home because they don't know what Richmond-Gordman is. I grew up going to Richmond-Gordman. You remember those elephant slides and all that stuff? And You don't have any money? You just put it in the back and give them five bucks. The world runs around now like they're not accountable and they sin and sin and sin and nobody seems to be doing anything about it. But on that day, you're going to give an account to whom... We give the account. King James renders it this way Him with whom we have to do. One translation translated, You have to explain everything you did on that day. How's that going to work for you? Explaining everything you did on that day before God. And so, what the writer is trying to get you to do is there's no way you can do that. One sin and you're undone. God requires perfection. Complete obedience. So the only way you're going to have hope is if you're going to run to the one who obeyed in your place, the representative, the substitute. You better rest in him. This is scary. Here's how Ecclesiastes ends. God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden. You know those skeletons you have in your closet that you don't want anybody to know? Judgment day for you with those skeletons unless you'll rest in another, unless you'll trust in Christ who who pays for those skeleton sins. You don't want God's presence on judgment day if you have sin. That would be unthinkable. That would be unnerving. That would be nightmarish. Romans 2, It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. How are you doing? And it better be perfect. But now, the passage turns. And as scary as 12 and 13 are, 14, 15, and 16 are just as comforting. It's like balm to the sinful soul. Encouragement, pleasant. They're pleasing verses. Luther said, after terrifying us, the apostle now comforts us. Oh, I need some comfort in light of what we just read. Let me give you three encouragements to rest in Jesus, to keep trusting in Him, And if you're not, to trust in Him today for the first time. The first encouragement is, Jesus is a great high priest. Keep trusting in this high priest. Verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest, present tense, who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So He's saying to the the Christians, He's saying to you, dear Christian, Don't go back and trust in the old system. Don't go back to works. Don't go back to your baptism and your circumcision and all the other rituals and confirmation and and everything else. Keep trusting in Jesus. And and hold fast means it's like a nautical term to white knuckle it. It, It's just a synonym for keep believing, keep trusting, keep hoping. Now, if you read too fast, you, you miss out on this. Do you notice the text? Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus is his human name. The Son of God, that's divine name. Why would we need a divine human priest? Let me read to you a little bit from Job 9. Just listen. If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into a pit. For God is not a man as I am, Job said that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together, there's no arbiter between us who might lay his hands on both of us. So here's the idea. How do you approach a thrice holy God without getting disintegrated, without getting damned, without having his wrath? You need to have somebody be a mediator for you. You need a good trial lawyer. You need a good advocate. So who are you going to pick? Well, don't pick me because I have sin. And now I'm going to get obliterated in your place, then you're next. You're going to need somebody who can boldly approach God's throne with great perfection. So here's the, here's the visual image of Job. We're standing over here sinful. God is over here holy. And we need somebody in the middle who could put his hand on God, as it were, and put his hand on us. That's the language of Job. How could that ever happen? Well, you'd need to be man to put your hand on man. And guess what? Jesus completely is human, right? He's the God-man. He is perfectly human. He is truly human. But now I'm going to need somebody to put my his, his hand on God to be my representative. And guess what? Jesus is completely human. God. He's the son of God. And so it's like God the son can be the mediator because he didn't sin and he's our representative and substitute and can be the one who steps between you and God. You have that great high priest. That's amazing. I wonder if we took the word of God and examined Jesus' life. That that, that God-man who could stand like this. What if he had to be under the word? What if he was born of a woman, born under law? Would we find out anything about Jesus if we put him in that MRI tube and examined his life? Would we find any sin? Any rebellion? Or would we find the Father saying with great declarative praise, This is my beloved Son in what? In whom I'm well pleased. Would we find if we we examine Jesus' life any sin, any taint of sin? No, he's the perfect God-man. And so he can stand not for his own sins, but for our sins. Who talks like this except for Jesus? You know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Listen. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And since he always pleases the Father, he can be the one that we look for as the priest to stand between. That is amazing. He humbled himself, Jesus did, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So you have perfect man, perfect God. He is the divine human mediator. Notice the text, great high priest. No Old Testament priest has ever called that. He, he is so great. He is so transcendent. I think great in Greek is mega. If you're from New England, he's the mega priest. I mean, he is just great. He's, he's over. He's emphatically great. He was called merciful high priest in chapter 2. He's called a faithful high priest in chapter 2. He's called a high priest in chapter 3, but here he's the great high priest. And he passed to the heavens. He didn't just pass into the outer court of the Old Testament temple. He didn't just pass into the holy place, not just into the holy of holies, but he is gone all the way to heaven. He, he's done his job. So let's just stop for a second. If you have such a great high priest, you know what language should be gone from you, Christian? Is the language that says, you know what? I don't think I've done enough today to be acceptable to God. I could do it this way. How's your prayer life? We have a big celebration today. It's called the Lord's Day. And then we have a minor celebration tonight. Pat's 20 years here. Have you been praying for today? How's your prayer life this week? Did you pray enough? There's a lot of dead people in Nebraska that is spiritually dead. Have you been evangelizing them enough this week? How's your evangelism life? Did you memorize the Bible enough this week? Did you pray enough? Did you read enough? Did you serve enough? How's your enough life doing? But when you realize you have a high priest who stands before you and God, guess what? Jesus prayed enough. What does Hebrews 7 say? He always lives to make what? Intercession. And so you are in Christ Jesus. That motivates me to pray. Jesus evangelized enough. He read enough. He meditated enough on Scripture. He served enough. He humbled himself enough. And you stand in Him. Well, you know, I haven't done enough today to kind of earn my favor before God. Enough of that, enough talk. Jesus did it all. I think he said on the cross, It is finished. And your legal standing before God, it's completely taken care of. So when you don't pray like you ought to, he doesn't kick you out of the family. He's your high priest. Not only is he a great high priest, secondly, you should be encouraged because he's a compassionate high priest. I mean, maybe he's gone so far up to heaven I can never get a hold of him. I mean, he doesn't have office hours, I guess, if he's way up in heaven. I'd rather have some kind of sinful priest that's down here on earth. I could just talk to him if I needed. Oh, no. He's not just transcendent and great. He's close. There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, by the way. Verse 15. Look at how compassionate he is. We do not have a high priest who who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He's too far away. How can he know about my problems? but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Anytime you need this priest's assistance to be reminded of his sacrifice and to have his prayers, you just go to him. Freely go to him, open access, freedom, and he understands. The word sympathize there is simple but wonderful. It means you care so much about the person, you'll do something about it. Oh, I'm sorry for your pain. That's not what this word is. I'm sorry for your pain, so let me sit next to you and help you. Let me alleviate your troubles. Let me come alongside of you. I understand what it's like to be weak. I understand what it's like to be human. I have sympathy. I will help you. This is very practical, by the way. Uh, I've learned quite a few things in... 25 years of preaching the Bible, here's how I used to counsel. Somebody would come in and they'd tell me what they did wrong and I would say it either out loud, most of the time just to myself, but I'd say, that is like the stupidest thing I've ever heard. How could you be so idiotic? That was so foolish. I mean, this is like, I can't extract you from all this. That is so stupid. I cannot believe you did that. How would you get yourself into that situation? But you know what? I'm not really a great high priest. And I'm not very sympathetic. And when you go to Jesus after you've sinned, Christian, and you confess your sin, and you say, I've fallen short, I'm sorry, please forgive me, guess what the response of the great high priest is? I understand. I know. I love you anyway. I might say as the counselor, you disappoint me. That's not what the Lord Jesus says. No condescension. So therefore, when you do sin, you run to him and say, you know what? This doesn't make me want to sin. This makes me want to honor the one who loves me so much. He knows what it's like to be tempted. What's the text say? Tempted as we are. And yet, even at a higher rate, because you think about Jesus in the wilderness with Satan... Over and over and over, tempted, oh, just go for the cross later. Go for glory now. Second Corinthians 5, he knew no sin. 1 Peter 2, he did no sin. 1 John 3, in him is no sin. And you think, oh, well, wait a second. I want somebody who's going to be a good high priest, who knows what it's like to sin and then needs help. Really? Is that what you want? Warren Wiersbe said, Sin can blind us to the hurts of others. Sin can harden our hearts and make us judgmental instead of sympathetic. It's the spiritually minded person with a clean heart who sympathizes with a sinner and seeks to help him. Galatians one. Because we're so sinful, we have a hard time helping other sinners. But because Jesus is perfect, he's able to meet our needs after we sin. Isn't that good? When you sin, Christian, Jesus is a great high priest who sympathizes with your weakness. When I got the call, oh, you've got cancer and you've got to do this, that, or the other, and radiation and everything else, I so struggled with fear and anxiety. Not about my salvation, but just everything that goes along with it. And somebody texted me a quote from Thomas Goodwin when I was at the Shepherd's Conference. And I just started crying, thinking about how great God's love is towards his children. And this was the text from Thomas Goodwin. Even your very sins move him to pity more than anger. Yea, his pity is increased the more toward you, even as the heart of a father is to a child that has some loathsome disease. His bowel shall be the more drawn out to you. And this as much when you lie under sin as if you lie under any other affliction. Therefore, fear not, what shall separate us from Christ's love? He's a great high priest. He's a compassionate high priest. He knows, and then lastly, he's a gracious high priest you see it in verse 16? Let us therefore draw near with confidence. This is language of approaching into the temple, but now, of course, we have the greatest high priest with confidence to the throne of... By the way, if you're Jewish, there's no throne of grace. It's throne of judgment, throne of, of destruction, throne of medi- meeting out a punishment. You don't want to go before the throne. But here, for the first time and only time, because of the great high priest, his sacrifice, his intercession, his Representative substitutionary work drawn you with confidence to the throne of what? Grace. Anybody here need grace? Guess where you go to get it. Guess what's bestowed at, a best, at, at the throne of grace. Grace. Kind of different from Sinai. Thunder, lightning, smoke, fire, yellow police tape at the bottom of the mountain. Don't let your animals go there. Kind of different from. I just thought I was kind of carrying the ark around, but I touched the thing and now I'm killed. No, no, now just go to the throne of grace. Tyndale translates this as the seat of grace. That's amazing. The seat of grace. These Christians were struggling. They're tempted to go back to the old system. They're hurting. They're going through trials. And this writer just parades before them who Jesus is. Why go back? You can get grace anytime you want. Approach him. Now, it does say at the end of the verse, verse 16, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The word there, mercy, just means God has pity. God cares. And grace probably has to do with something, with sin. When you sin, you still go to God. You don't run from Him. You go to Him just at the right time get the right kind of assistance, at the right trial, at the right temptation. He's a great high priest. He's a compassionate high priest. And he's a gracious high priest. I mean, who's like this? On that day, you'll stand before God. And there'll be an accounting. You need a priest. You cannot do it alone. So rest in this one. He's great. He's sympathetic. He's gracious. When I officiate weddings, I always ask the couple before the wedding, I say to the man, could you tell me four reasons why you picked this young lady or this older lady? I don't say older lady, but this this lady. Uh, (laughs) That's why I don't do many marriages. Uh, (laughs) Tell me why you picked her. And it's a sweet, sweet moment because she wants to know what he's going to say. And he's on the spot. Should I say theology things for pastor or do I tell her how good she looks? And so he'll say things like, she's a Christian. She's, I said, you can say it. She's pretty. One guy said, she's a five-point Calvinist. I'm like, wow, so romantic. Oh. And they give me a list of all these things. And I say, you know what? I commend you for choosing a wife with these characteristics. Loves children, loves all these other folks. Just wonderful and you just pick for the right reasons. I commend you for that. That's good love. But you want to know what greater love is? Romans chapter 5 gives four descriptions of the sinner. One is ungodly, one is sinner, one is enemy and one is helpless. That's us. And God demonstrates his own love for us that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, it's greater love for a man picking a woman because she's pretty and attractive and godly. It's that God, the Son, would be sent by the Father, powered by the Spirit of God, to die for sinners like us. And you have two options. You either stand before God naked on that day, I'll trust in my own resources, and you will be undone. And God will say to you, Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You will be damned forever, given a special body to experience the torments of the damned forever. But you don't have to go. Wouldn't you like to be forgiven? Wouldn't you like to trust in a, a high priest who can stand before you and God? A high priest who's great, sympathetic, and gracious? Then today's the day to rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. I thank you, Father, for your time that you've given us on earth to just contemplate these things, and we will contemplate the glories of Jesus in heaven forever, forever, our risen Savior. I pray for the dear Christians here today. Remind them again to keep trusting in your Son's work. It's just built in us, Father. We confess we are so fallen. We're saved by grace, and we try to keep up by works. And, Father, for those that are here today who aren't trusting in you, I pray that You would give them no rest until they rest in Your Son and His work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.